I'm Kai Rizdo, and this is Marketplace. Empowered Sleep Apnea is an educational podcast, which is a bit different from a medical advice show. Clinical decision-making in sleep medicine can be complex, so even empowered patients need a partner. Play it smart and make sure you talk to your healthcare provider before making any changes to your medical treatment plan. And now, on with the show. Sleep Apnea, the podcast, season two, stories from the field, episode two, Toronto. This is Dave McCarty. I'm a physician, and I specialize in figuring out how to help people with sleep disorders feel better. I'm a sleep medicine specialist. I spent my career trying to understand sleep apnea and how it affects people. One of the early lessons I learned is that sleep apnea is complicated and that individual patients can experience it very differently. For example, if I tell you that I just broke my wrist, you'd have a pretty good idea of what my healing trajectory will involve. A cast, some pain control measures, maybe some physical therapy. What image comes to mind if I tell you I'm diagnosed with sleep apnea. Is it fuzzy? What do you make of the fact that some individuals with sleep apnea are heavy, but lots are skinny? Some folks snore and others don't. Some folks are always sleepy and some can't sleep at night. Some folks will die young as a direct result of sleep apnea and others will die old of an unrelated cause and they'll never even know they had it. So. What does the label sleep apnea even mean? In the first five episode season of this podcast, we followed a fictional character, Robert, as he learned his way around this diagnosis by exploring a magical aisle, the Isle of Sleep Apnea. Get it? I love sleep apnea. We learned about the importance of exploring the narrative behind the label of sleep apnea. To better understand our own sleep-wake complaints, we explored the moving parts of sleep apnea, both the obstructive and the central apnea flavors. We found our new favorite bistro, the Five Reasons Monument Coffee Hut, where we had all the time in the world to explore our own five reasons to treat sleep apnea. Those reasons being risk, risk snoring, snoring, sleep, sleep wake, wake, and comorbidities. comorbidities. We learned to deconstruct these reasons into our goals of therapy, and we learned about navigating life in treated territory, which can sometimes mire people in tangles of complications and competing diagnoses. And finally, we toured the majesty of Five Finger Approach Mountain, and we learned about how to disassemble the process of problem solving when you have non-specific sleep-wake complaints, breaking it up into five smaller pieces that are easier to deal with, what I call the five clinical domains of sleep medicine, circadian misalignment, pharmacologic factors, medical factors, psychiatric slash psychosocial factors, and finally, primary sleep diagnoses. For season two, I want to take our exploration further, off the island, to parts unknown, 
In season two, we're going to collect stories. Some stories will be fiction. Some stories will be true. Some stories are about patients and some are about their providers. All of them will include our friend Sleep Apnea as a main character. So let's pack up our recording gear and our cartooning supplies and let's climb in the basket of our beautiful blue hot air balloon, our ship of good hope. Blasting the furnace inflates the balloon, makes us rise like optimism. We will say goodbye to our magical isle and point our bearing across the endless ocean, up, up, away and back to the continent. North America scoots underneath us, the unmistakable Great Lakes. We lighten up on the heat as we descend, and we see the lights of Toronto. Closer still, and we see a neighborhood. Closer still, a home. There's a light on in the kitchen. In that kitchen is our first storyteller. From that kitchen our first story from the field. Welcome to the program, Kate Yeshrin and her true story of the endless sinus infection. Hi, my name is Kate. I wanna tell you a story about a nine year sinus infection and about how the universe led me to a man who helped change the trajectory of my life. The story for me actually started in high school. That's when I remember my first sinus infection. That's when the journey began. With facial pressure, nasal obstruction, and a day off of school. Little did I know then that this would be a recurring scenario that would define my young adulthood. By college, I'd get two sinus infections per year. Major congestion, congestion, headaches, sinus pressure, pressure. radiating across my face, interrupted Interrupted sleep, sleep. it was always the same. Doctor visits, antibiotics, steroids, nasal sprays. And did I mention the fatigue? The the terrible, terrible fatigue. Even in between the acute infections, my breathing through my nose was never exactly clear. It always felt like there was some kind of blockage and air could not flow freely. This was more than just an inconvenience. It was ruining my ability to meditate, which is a very important part of my day. Anytime I tried mindful breathwork exercises, I'd find myself unable to connect to the experience and reap the benefits, mind, body, or soul. My breathing was taking a toll. One thing that I've learned on this journey, if there are symptoms, Somebody's got a medication. And boy, did I take medications. For congestion, there's the saga of Afrin. For those of you who aren't familiar, Afrin is a nasal decongestant spray, which means that when you spray it in your nose, it has a direct effect on blood vessels, causing them to shrink. This has the immediate effect of causing tissue swelling to go down, which we perceive as better airflow through the nose. Ah, really? The problem? The spray itself is irritating, and the blood vessels don't like being tripped like that. So when the spray wears off, the nose tends to get more congested than it was before. You can see where this is leading.
Over the years, I have really tried everything. Vicks Vaporub, Neti Pods, Acupuncture, every cold remedy on the market. Of course, nothing really worked. Despite all of these seemingly trusted interventions, I was congested nearly all the time. Of course, the breathing issues aren't an isolated phenomenon. It's not like you can spend your life mildly struggling to breathe without paying some sort of price for it. For me, it's always been about sleep, or perhaps it's more correct to say about the quality of my sleep and how that affects my waking day. I remember when I was 12, I recall having some mild difficulty focusing at school. And it didn't take long for the neuropsychiatrist to diagnose me with ADD. That's when the amphetamines began. It started with Concerta at age 12. By the time I was 18, my trouble focusing during the daytime was even more profound. But somehow I knew this wasn't ADD. That didn't stop me from using the Adderall they switched me to as I set off to study at college. See, by that time without the medication, I really don't think I'd been able to stay awake. How could I be expected to feel good during the day if I couldn't sleep at night? And boy, the nights were tough. I felt anxious constantly. That was a given. But the more I couldn't sleep, the more the nighttime itself started to be a source of anxiety. As soon as the lights go out, my inner voice started talking. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. My brain doesn't want to turn off. If I don't sleep, I won't be able to function tomorrow. And so forth. These beliefs in turn cranked up my anxiety, bringing on a cascade of more and more negative, limiting beliefs about sleep. And the cycle just continued. When I discussed these symptoms with my neuropsychiatrist, the answer, of course, was simple. More medication. This time, clonazepam. Clonazepam is a benzodiazepine. This drug class, like the amphetamines Concerta and Adderall, also happens to be habit-forming. What that means is this. The more you take it, meaning the longer duration your brain is exposed to this medication, the more your brain will get used to it. Different drugs create different withdrawal syndromes. When the inevitable time comes that your brain senses that there's not enough of the drug around to make it feel normal. For Concerta and Adderall, the withdrawal syndrome Syndrome. usually involves fatigue, headaches, and lethargy. For clonazepam, the syndrome is insomnia and anxiety. Kind of makes you think doesn't it? After I graduated college, for the next five years or so, my sinus and sleep issues got increasingly worse. Instead of a couple sinus infections a year, I was now having a sinus infection per season. Whenever the weather changed, I could literally feel it in the air. I knew it was coming. And it wasn't just the sinus infections. Even my colds were worse than everybody else's. A minor cold would last for two weeks. And you know that painful pressure that happens in your ear sometimes when you're landing in an airplane? Well, about that time, that started happening too. Pretty much all the time leading to dull, constant headaches. As you might guess, my life was a constant effort seeking relief. Throughout college and post-college, I entertained a parade of doctors and healthcare providers, primary care, ENTs, an allergist, even an acupuncturist. All of them said the same thing, chronic sinusitis, but no one could really pinpoint why. A little over three years ago, I met an ENT who told me that if I didn't get surgery to fix my deviated septums and clear out the nasal polyps, my sinus infections would only get worse and more frequent. At this point, my future really seemed dire and my desperation was taking shape into action. 
In 2019, I went to the operating room to fix my deviated septum and create better openings to allow the maxillary sinuses to drain. At the time, it felt like the only choice. After the surgery, I had a glimmer of hope. At first I thought, hallelujah. My nose was a little bit clearer for a few months. It was never perfect, but hey, I could breathe a little easier. Maybe I was in the clear. By spring though, my hopes were dashed with another typical relapse with facial pressure, pressure, headaches, worse sleep, the whole nine yards. A CT scan at that point showed that my sinuses looked worse than they did before the surgery. My bitter disappointment with yet another failure only made it worse. Two things got me past this point of black despair. My spiritual faith in Kabbalah and a very special dentist named Dr. Ted Belfort. Though, now that I'm saying that, I know it was Kabbalah that led me to Dr. Belfort, so maybe it's just one thing that got me through. All I know is that I'm grateful. In the fall of 2019, I started a new job. It was one of those meaningless conversations one has with one's coworkers. Just passing the time, I mentioned my ongoing sinus saga to my conversation companion in passing. You need to see my husband, she said. He's a dentist, and he has a new way of dealing with issues like that. At that point in my saga, please understand, I'd been through a lot. This was not, as they say, my first rodeo. I made the appointment and I did my best to hide my skepticism. During my first visit with Dr. Belfort, I admit I was really only half listening. I'd heard so many spiels before, but there was something about Dr. Belfort that was different. When he talked about my problem, he was poking at a much deeper level. When he talked about my problem, he spoke of root causes. He listened to me intently when I told him about my sleep quality and how tired I always seemed to be. When he looked in my mouth, he seemed surprised and told me that my visible airway was wide open, that the back of my throat did not have the typical floppy and dysfunctional look that we usually associate with sleep apnea. However, he said something I'll never forget. He said that sleep apnea could still be part of my problem. Not because I was heavy or because my airway was floppy, but because of the shape of the bones in my face. He explained to me that the sinuses can get inflamed by many mechanisms as a direct result of the sleep apnea events. He told me he wanted to send me home with a screening test for sleep apnea to learn more. This statement really rocked my world. I couldn't believe it. I always thought that sleep apnea was a heavy person's problem. I've always been healthy and fit, so how could this really apply to me? I went home, I did my research, I found out that there are different presentations of sleep apnea because there are lots of different things that contribute to it. I started to learn just how complicated this disorder really is. Dr. Belfort sent me home with his high-resolution pulse oximeter device, a wearable finger-mounted gadget that measures your blood oxygen saturation continuously. That way, if you're having periodic difficulty with airway blockage, you can literally see the oxygen level bouncing up and down. 
A normal result should look like a fairly straight line across the page. An abnormal result tends to zigzag. The body wants to keep oxygen levels normal and stable, you see? It doesn't like instability. Zigzags are a no-no. I gathered my courage and decided to go through with the test. When the results came back, I was astounded to see not just zigzags, but lots of zigzags. My test showed that I was having 18 significant oxygen drops per hour of sleep. That's a level consistent with a moderate degree of sleep apnea. One contributor to sleep apnea happens to be the shape of the face. The upper jaw, the lower jaw, how they fit together, and how the tongue functions. I learned that all of these components may conspire to create breathing problems during sleep, which can compound breathing problems during the day, hence chronic sinusitis. I learned that the fight or flight stimulation that happens during sleep apnea events is a likely contributor to anxiety symptoms and insomnia. I learned that the poor quality sleep was a probable contributor to symptoms that had been ascribed to ADHD. As I said, I was skeptical, but I'm also a mystical person. I believe in the energy I receive from the universe and from other people. And what I felt from Dr. Belfort was sincerity and authenticity mixed with a spark of humble genius. My logic said, don't go down another path with another doctor. You'll just be disappointed again. My heart and my soul said, you can trust this man. He is a true healer. I decided to listen to my heart, and in the spring of 2019, Dr. Belfort fit me for a homeo-block device and a pod device, gave me a special tape to tape my mouth at night, and encouraged me to relearn how to breathe through my nose. He also taught me some simple daily breathing exercises. Then he sent me on my merry way. The whole thing was so strange. I was skeptical, but I trusted the energy. I was open. Plus, at this point, what did I have to lose? I'd moved to Toronto in January 2020. Toronto is even colder and more environmentally challenging than New York, so I was sure that my next sinus infection was just around the corner. I steeled my heart against what I presumed would be another disappointment. But then, nothing. The weeks passed. February, March, holy smokes, I made it through the winter. A year passed, no sinus infection. During that time, perhaps unsurprisingly, but still astounding to me given my history, I gradually noted improvements to my sleep. Previously, I'd been getting up three times per night to urinate. By spring 2020, I found I was sleeping through the night. Where previously I was waking up feeling groggy, desperate for my coffee, I happily realized at some point that I was just waking up feeling rested. After about 18 months of therapy, Dr. Belfort said I could stop wearing the appliances at night. I still put it in every fourth night or so, just for good measure. After two years, Dr. Belfort repeated my high-resolution pulse oximetry test, and my oxygen desaturation index had dropped from 18 per hour down to zero. I know it's not a formal sleep test, but I'm pretty happy with that. I'm also happy to report that my story continues on a happy trajectory. It's been three years now and I haven't had a single sinus infection, not one. I had one cold, but it only lasted a few days and it went away, just like a cold is supposed to. For the first time in my adult life, I can say I truly feel normal. I'm sleeping well and I no longer feel like I have symptoms of anxiety or ADD. And I'm no longer taking meds for any of these problems. To put it simply, my life has been transformed. 
Sleep apnea for me was not typical per se. My story didn't neatly fit into a box. My journey taught me an important lesson about this disorder. When you look inside the machine that's known as sleep apnea, you'll find that there are a lot of moving parts in there. The sheer complexity of it means that there's never going to be a simple solution that works for everybody. You always have to take it apart to get to the source if you can. There may be more than one solution. There may be more than one thing you can try. For me, personally, the solution had to do with changing the function and position of specific bones in my skull while I relearned how to breathe through my nose and my tongue relearned how to function. My name is Kate, and this has been my story of empowerment. Welcome back to Empowered Sleep Apnea. Uh, I'm Dave McCarty, and I'm here with Dr. Ellen Stothard. Hello, Dave. Welcome back to the bunker. Yeah, the Empowered Sleep Apnea Hunker Down Bunker. Hunker Down Bunker. Yes. So we're talking today about a really kind of a cool case. Well, I think it's really interesting to me as a researcher. This is so different. It's so out there. We're not being given the data, given the information, and being able to collate it all together and understand it. It's something that people are bringing to us with this anecdotal evidence of revolutionary change to their life. Right. Look what happened. Absolutely. And how do we create a path forward to use that to create the most good for people. Yeah. Understand if it's something that can help only that person or a certain type of person yes. or the population more broadly. There are dangers with new innovations and the, the lens with which you view the world kind of changes the where you sense the danger, you know? I want to introduce that concept and see what you think. I totally agree with that. The way we're trained as researchers is these are your red flags. This is how you know what's good science and what's bad science. And so you have these pretty hard and fast rules to look at. How big is the study? How small is the study? Did they do the statistics? Did they control for the variables? Did they have a random sample? Other things like that that help us to believe that the information that we're getting from a study is not due to chance, really. Right, right. So that's what we're trying to determine. Is yeah. this an intentional thing or is it due to chance? Yeah, and this is and this is the standard of, of medical establishment is that, you know, hey, if you're going to say something treats a disease, then you got to show me the data that it actually does what you say it does. And then everybody starts getting ready to view the next big randomized controlled trial. What's interesting is that these different fields have developed in parallel, in sort of parallel silos, you know, in the mm -hmm. language of our last episode. If you give an orthodontist a problem that involves spacing of bones and teeth and things like that, and, they, and you basically assign them an engineering problem, they're going to get to work. And sometimes these innovations that come up in the field are just so outrageous, that it, but sometimes they work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to feature Kate's story on this program is it involves a, a particular type of of uh, epigenetic orthodonture, and that, that word is kind of loaded these days, but it involves a, um, uh, what I would actually consider to be true ep epigenetic orthodonture, and the science behind it is just fascinating. And, and what they're doing is truly kind of interesting, and we don't know kind of how many people will be cured by this yet. We have no idea, but what we do know is that as an engineering uh, solution to this 
part of the problem, which is the craniofacial respiratory complex, you know, the bony elements. Um, it's super cool. Yeah, so like a couple things that I think of in this scenario and, and things that you say that bring it up to me is everybody's got their certain tools, right? Like a plumber has a certain set of tools mm-hmm, yeah. and a roofer has a totally different set of tools. So what I heard a lot in Kate's story was everybody brought their own tool belt, but they didn't think about what tools could be in other tool belts, you know, that would be that could be treating or could be relevant. So everybody just kind of had their goggles on and they saw, yeah. you know, this thing's flowing. It must be a plumbing thing. Yeah, right, not, right, Maybe right. not an electricity and, and the thing. tool belt is sort of aimed at a label, mm-hmm. right? She was going through the system and, and so her behavioral problems got her a label and then landed into that silo. And then what else? She never actually saw a sleep doctor. No, and that's the thing that's amazing to me because the first thing I hear is sleep, but that's because of my experience. Yeah, and so all of us are like coughing down our sleeves going, well, she should have had a sleep study. But, you know, this is a thin, fit, absolutely gorgeous young woman. And and according to um, uh, Dr. Belfour, who who I actually spoke to about this case, because we the two of us wrote it up together, because I thought it was such a good one. Um, her airway was perfect. Oh really? To look in her airway, it was wide open. Mm. It was not floppy airway. So this was absolutely, if we want to take a polar opposite to what that original Pickwickian syndrome was like, you know, this is this is nowhere on the same screen, you know? It doesn't have the classic signs and symptoms of sleep apnea. It's she's, completely different. She's not snorting herself awake at night. She's not, you know, all that sort of stuff that we would, that people would be like, oh yeah, go right to the sleep doctor. She's not even complaining about her sleep necessarily. Right, This the sleep was, you know, an afterthought, wasn't mm-hmm. it? It was the headaches, it's yeah. the daytime symptoms. Headaches, yeah, and I know, yeah, I can't sleep at night, and bo- oh, by the way, I'm having trouble staying awake during the day, and that gets its own label, so people stop thinking about it when the, when the label goes on. Yeah. So that's, that's the real problem with reductionist label-based medicine. And, and, uh, and, you know, it, it's kind of, it's hard not to be there, you know, mm-hmm. because you, you, it, on the one hand, you have this problem and you got to go in and you got to get seen for it. And there's certain things you got to get done and you've only got so much time. And so I, I feel that tension. I, in fact, that the whole time I was practicing, I felt that tension. Yeah. And it's hard to not, it's hard to not get negative about it and say somebody missed something or this is a mm-hmm. problem because it's not. It's not necessarily anyone's fault, but it's also not, shouldn't be, and that's why we're here, it shouldn't be the responsibility of the patient to know what they don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this brings us back, for me anyway, it always brings us back to empowerment. Mm -hmm. And what, what could Kate have known? And, and, and when did she learn? And I think one of the things that kind of flipped a switch in her brain was the fact, oh my gosh, this could be an airway problem, even if I'm not that classic Pickwickian mm-hmm. syndrome, you know? Um, because remember, sleep apnea is a kind of a construct. A construct that came to life in 1966 when French epileptologist Dr. Henri Gasteau used a newfangled test called a polysomnogram to study the sleep of a patient with snoring, obesity, and daytime sleepiness. In other words, Pickwickian syndrome. And obviously, that's a lens but that lens doesn't apply to everybody.
And it's tough. It's tough when you don't have the um, specialists looking at it, right? When you have everyone who can see a flavor of something else appearing in the disease mm -hmm. that she's experiencing. It's going to get confusing for clinicians who are different, and it's going to get confusing for the patient as well. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I've seen happen, and it's hard to explain this phenomenon, but you get sort of stuck inside your silo. You learn, you know, there's really one good way to treat sleep apnea, and that's CPAP, because that's where the data is. And, and so you adopt this attitude that your patients can feel. And so if your patients aren't doing well on CPAP, and they're like, well, what about this other stuff? And, and the tendency is to be like, oh, yeah, there's no data for that. You know, I practice evidence-based medicine. And so you get into this sort of a, a friction, and the patient in that scenario feels shamed and, and discarded because they're asking, you know, is this, are there other possibilities? And if we stay in our silo, we don't understand actually what's happening out there. We can't really give good guidance. So we can't really say, oh yes, this is the greatest thing ever, you know, and everyone should do this. But for someone who's struggling, who has craniofacial issues, Maybe, and maybe if they're an early adopter, maybe maybe this is something they would want to do. You know I, what I mean? Yeah, I think that's the key that's really interesting is, is we come back to the reasons to treat, right? Yes, five reasons to treat. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so, this is exactly you're. So you're saying if they have this and they're they're feeling this way, this is again wondering why are they getting treated? Right. So having the conversation and them knowing that this is what they should ask about. Why am I actually on this treatment? Yeah. Is it just to get my number down, or is it something else? The funny part is, I actually had a conversation with a fam, a friend of a friend this weekend, and she was like, "Oh yeah, they gave me that machine, and they said my numbers were going down, but I didn't feel like I was sleeping better." And I, heard, I felt my my empowered sleep apnea personality yes. come out yes. when I was talking to her, and I was like, "That must have been really difficult for you mm -hmm. if they didn't explain to you." Because she said, "She's like, oh, I just stopped using the machine." You know, when I go back to, you know, the lower altitude where I used to live, I don't need the machine. But when I'm up here, I need the machine. Mm -hmm. And I just I just can't get used to it. And I can't I move around a lot and I don't feel comfortable and all this stuff. But my stuff was so low. You know, my numbers were so low. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought it was fine. It's so interesting to take those details from people and see it through our lens and be able to have a conversation with her like, well, did anyone tell you why you were mm -hmm. doing this? Mm -hmm. And so for our scenario here... She didn't know why. She just knew she needed to feel better, but right. she couldn't drive that conversation. And, and people were seeing it through their own lenses. And, you know, bless their hearts, we're all busy. You know, we are all busy. And, and you know, you're an ENT surgeon and you have, you have your way of going through things and someone's got chronic sinusitis. And by the way, chronic sinusitis with polyposis is one of the most recalcitrant diseases we've got and it's just it's a terrible burden and uh you know so the trajectory that was expected for her was really sort of dim and and it was another reason why this story really grabbed my my short hairs and made me pay attention because do having that sort of a turnaround is, is really unusual you know yeah well can you can you talk a little bit more about that because that sounded pretty medical So, you know, it's complicated is the thing. One of the reasons that chronic sinusitis can happen is that the the os, the opening of the maxillary sinus, which drains into the, the nasal pharyngeal space, that can get blocked, okay? Mm -hmm. And the reason it gets blocked is for lots of reasons. And usually it's mucosal swelling of some kind, but when people have obstructive sleep apnea events, when they're sucking 
in against a semi-closed airway. What happens to contents of the stomach is they tend to get sucked north. Mm. And that tends to sort of put this wash of toxic substances over those delicate those structures, and it makes them constantly irritable, okay? So it's a way that sleep apnea itself can drive sinusitis. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, just by reducing upper airway resistance, whatever you want to call that, reducing the, the difficulty drawing air in because of the limited flow, you can create a beneficial um, uh, endpoint with respect to sinusitis. It's one of the comorbidities that tends to improve when you treat sleep apnea, okay? The other, the other thing about um, this process, what um, Ted Belfour is calling morphogenic functional appliance therapy, is that this form of oral appliance therapy is, is very different. It's not the same, like they're not all the same. And, and some of them function by putting static forces kind of laterally on the palate which ultimately can, can make the, the, um, the upper jaw a little bit wider, if you will, because it tips the palate bones away, almost like an umbrella opening up. So you're using a lot of hand gestures here. I feel like this is, a, this is a thing to explain, you know, to be able to picture is the key to it. So if we think about the top of our mouth, yeah. we've got some bones in there, and some people have narrower faces and some people have wider faces, just mm -hmm. like some people have narrower necks, wider necks, yep. longer necks, shorter necks. Yep. All this physiology is playing into the disease status, yeah. the physiological functioning, health or otherwise of of all of your airways that right. are connected. Remember the moving parts of obstructive sleep apnea, the narrower the, the upper jaw, you know, the less room there is for the tongue. And the tongue has to go somewhere. And if it can't go up there, then it's gonna, it's gonna kind of sit backwards and be part of the problem. So one way that we have of solving this engineering problem, yes. quote unquote, is forcing air through it to keep the back open. That's right. But that doesn't change if you don't have enough space in there, right? That's right, that's right. So if we're looking at someone who doesn't have enough space in there to begin with another potential strategy if we're trying to fix it is to create more space that's right and we don't have what we're saying to come back all the way around to the beginning yes. is what we're saying is we don't have a ton of evidence to show that this can be done systematically in people and, and how it can be done safely yeah and and what the results are expected to be but there are some really really outstanding cases where it has improved in a situation yeah, right. like chronic sinusitis which we wouldn't expect to see such a quote-unquote easy yes quick simple straightforward turnaround yeah yeah and by the way for for listeners this is a case uh kate's case of the endless sinusitis is actually uh, one that we are submitting as a case report and uh the manuscript for that will be available on the website so i was explaining that the, there's there's different kinds of oral appliances and they're not all the same and, and you know some of them work by putting static forces laterally on the upper jaw the, the, the maxillary jaw, and it opens that structure up like an umbrella. And, and that can be beneficial for some people because opening up that space can, can do some good. But those, those kind of um, uh, appliances can also do harm if they're advanced too far because you can push the teeth out too far and you can cause, cause some trauma that way. So there, there's, there are things that need to be done with a lot of supervision. Absolutely. And so just to kind of put that in context, are there other treatments for sleep apnea or other diseases that you can think of off the top of your head that are similar to that, where they have great potential if they're used in that sweet spot? 
Well, yeah, I mean, sure. I would say anything that uh, you, you do as an intervention medically that requires a prescription has a possibility of causing harm. You, you know, CPAP causes problems and medications we prescribe cause problems. So it's something that ideally should be done under the supervision of someone who's familiar with that treatment and who cares about the patient not selling the product. You know? So that's not a totally crazy thing to have something like this that could have, in the sweet spot, really good benefits. Yeah. Well, this is what I'm trying to sort of open the conversation because these silos of thought are so different that they, they're they actually not really speaking to one another. And and so as a result, there is a, there's a lot of um, inter-silo hostility sometimes, mm -hmm. and, and the patient has to navigate all of that. So what we're trying to do with the Empowered Sleep Apnea Project Project is bring the conversation always back to the patient. You know, patient-centered approach means that the patient understands the five reasons to treat before engaging in anything, and the the thoughtful follow-up is going to be based on those five reasons to treat. We create the goals, and then we figure out if we're getting the patient there. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, we understand that ours isn't the only silo. You know. And we got to be thinking about how to get the patient through if they happen to do poorly with the tools that we're used to. Somehow I just have this image of like a farm. You know, <laughs> every time you talk about the silos, I think about where I'm from in Ohio. There's lots of silos on farms and yeah. things like that. And some are filled with grain and some are filled with corn and some are filled with all kinds of different things. But they're all on the same piece of land. And I, yeah. I get this image that like we're somehow the farmers in here bringing it all together. Oh, I don't I like know if that, that makes sense. No, I like but. that. I like that. Or maybe, uh, you know, the, the tenders. I, I, Really, I, I like the concept of the blue balloon because it, it does feel sort of like it frees you a little bit of, of some of those siloed thinking patterns. Well, it's know? a totally different view when you go up there. It is. I mean, you've climbed 14ers, right? I've been on one. They're not easy to get to and they're not easy to get to the top. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But the view, a 14... A 14er in Colorado is a 14,000 foot mountain. It you climb up. It is 360, baby. You're above everything. Yeah. And everything looks totally different up it, there. It is a complete change of perspective. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to, to do a little bit of a, of a walkthrough of what I understand about the, the, uh, the appliances that Kate is using. It's a fascinating um, idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically what it does is it makes use of the, of the normal signaling that is, that is built into our structures to, that tell the, the head and jaws how to develop. So as we develop, as we're you know, growing and stuff, the shape of the upper jaw and the shape of our airway and the shape of our lower jaw is basically dependent on functional activities. Functional activities. Right? So as we suck on mom's breast and get milk, that massaging of the tongue against the roof of the mouth is actually what spreads the palate. Okay. As we're breathing through our nose, that airflow through the nose, the act of nasal breathing during development, is what develops the mid-face and the sinuses. So if we don't breathe through our noses, that part of our face doesn't develop properly. Mm -hmm. Isn't that crazy? I The thing that I read about this one time was that the chewing that we do, because we have such soft food now and we don't chew for the same duration of time, that's another contributor to this underdevelopment of the palate and the nasal airspace. That is correct. And you know why? You know where the signaling is? This is what I learned from, from this journey. As we bite together, as there is tooth-to-tooth -to -tooth contact, 
that produces functional forces on the periodontal ligament, which then goes up and translates to epigenetic forces in the suture lines. Okay, so our heads know how to develop because all of this stuff is connected, like the jaw and stuff is connected to the temporal bone is connected. So all of that stuff is connected. And when we use our teeth in a certain way, it makes our heads develop in a certain way. So that's the basic idea of development. Now, when you take all of that and you try to reverse engineer it, you realize you can create these little physical therapy devices that amplify these normal movements. So uh, there is a device that uh, is called a homeoblock, which is something that you wear at night. And it's got these little um, uh, wire extenders that when you normally move your tongue and you swallow and the tongue does what it does, it sends a, a, a little pulse of a signal to the periodontal ligament. It's not actually pushing on the teeth. It's actually doing something to stimulate the roof of the mouth, basically. And that sends signals up in a, in a lopsided way to create development where previously there wasn't. And I'm not making the claim that the bone is actually growing and morphing. What it's doing is, if you think of the skull as kind of this very complicated jigsaw puzzle in three dimensions, it's kind of moving the jigsaw pieces in relationship to each other and strengthening certain attachments and weak, you know, whatever. And in so doing, it can actually realign the position of the jaw. So, you know, the before and after pictures on, on uh, this story are, are pretty fascinating. There's a technique of, of doing a pre and post CT scan, and then you can have them mathematically compared and see where the bone moved. And, and it's truly fascinating. There is bony changes in all of the right places. And, uh, and what ended up happening in Kate's case is it just sort of like moved her stuff around just enough where she felt like she was breathing easily through her nose again. Um, she stopped breathing through her mouth. Um, obviously, whatever was the sleep apnea condition, which was never fully confirmed, but whatever was there completely went away, and and she ended up symptom-free. And I just thought that was a fascinating journey for what was essentially a, um, a really cool physical therapy program. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's amazing to think that we have come to a place in our knowledge that we can understand how these disparate physical spaces connect and talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So we can use physical therapy and we can use the normal functioning of the body to try to improve something that, you know, like if you think about development, how much is there that goes right that some of it may just go a little bit wrong sometimes. Yeah, right. And how can we leverage those processes to try to fix things so that they function well and support good physiology and healthy living. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's really interesting to me is what you were explaining about how exactly it goes about doing this because there are other oral appliance devices, right? So we think about if we go back all the way, everybody's familiar with the CPAP. Yep. It goes on your nose, on your mouth, pushes air through your airway. So it's mm -hmm. using that whole nasal airspace, yep. oral nasal airspace to uh, keep your airway patent. Mm -hmm. But you also have um, the oral appliances that we've talked about that tend to try to bring the jaw forward. Right, also creating more room, right? Creating mm -hmm. more room for the tongue to exist. But they're not actually affecting a change within, their their goal is not to affect a change within the physiology. Right, right. well, yeah, I see what you're saying. It's more of a splint. Yes. Right, it's splinting the problem. And, you know, that's a cool idea. And, and wouldn't it be cool if, like, 
we could actually do something where the splint wasn't needed. And how cool is that? Yes. Know? And so how, my question kind of is, how is this different from, because you called it um, epigenetic orthodontics. Yes. Some of it, some of the part of this world is called epigenetic orthodontics. Yes. So that's a big word yeah. for a lot of people. Two yeah. big words, in fact. <laughs> right. So it's epigenetic, weird. what does that mean in this, in this okay. scenario? Um, so orthodonture, we'll start with that one because that's easy. Everybody's used to orthodonture that, you know, you, you move teeth to make them straight. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that uh, some of these pioneers are figuring out is that part of the reason the teeth are crooked to begin with is because the skull has grown kind of in a weird way. And, um, and there is an, a different way of looking at the skull where uh, it becomes clearer and clearer that not everybody's face is symmetric. And that dissymmetry is sometimes a clue. Okay, so the terminology that, that's being used is craniofacial dystrophy. That's the buzzword that's being used to describe that phenomenon when the skull develops in a slightly lopsided way. And sometimes there's problems with it. People get temporomandibular joint dysfunction because of it because the jaw sits funny. Uh, there's breathing disorders that are problematic. So all of that kind of runs with it. Epigenetic refers to a, a kind of a new-ish concept. It's not really new, but the idea that we're not just all genes, you know. So, for example, if you were to ask... Um, a bunch of people, well, why do I have buck teeth? It's like, well, he's probably in your runs in your family. And somehow it's preordained that it's genetic. Okay. And the thought process about many of these issues is that, you know, we're born with a, with a kind of a DNA blueprint and a set of supplies that shows up on site. And then what happens during development is different things. And so if we're breathing through our mouths instead of through our nose, different genetic growth centers are going to be stimulated because the, the lower jaw is not going to grow right and the, the upper jaw is going to be too narrow. So all, all of these things are called epigenetics. It's actually activation of genes at the time of service, you know. So the concept of epigenetic orthodonture is we're using the same ideas about how things develop in the first place and we're trying to send signals that amplify the ones we want to, to create growth and, and, and movement in the right direction. So that's really interesting because that makes me think of like the whole nature versus nurture thing, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in the time, of, so nature arrives and then nurture takes over and it can kind of have a difference in the way that it plays out in your life. Mm -hmm. And so we're using that knowledge that we have to try to improve the physiology and actually quote unquote cure the situation as opposed to put on something like a yeah, splint, right? Right. So it's a it's a search for a different solution. It's a, it's not treating the disease anymore. It's actually sort of using the disease as a starting point and then trying to reverse engineer your way out of it. Absolutely. And uh, and right now there's just very little data for it. All there is is sort of like the engineering concepts behind it. So orthodontics is nothing new. We do that all the time. Mm -hmm. And on so they, Yeah, they've been moving structures around for as long as they've had wires and stuff, right? Exactly. And we don't necessarily know the downstream impacts of that, do we? You know, there are, there are increasing concerns in the dental community that some of the, the historical practices of, you know, you straighten the teeth and how do you put straight, straighter teeth in a, in, a, in a crowded mouth? Well, you take four of them out. And, and so that process has been, you know, it's historically done on many people. Uh, and what it results in is nice straight teeth in a, in a much smaller oral vault. And many of those folks go on to, to get airway problems. So. so I think it's really interesting to say, to kind of acknowledge here from the research perspective on my side is that 
Research is not done once we've done it once right. and found an answer, right? right. The, the science is not re- repeating what we know. One study does not, uh, a, you know, a theory make. You yes. need to have a plethora of evidence. We all want to have, you know, multiple repeatable studies to show this is what's happening yes. and this is why it's happening. And this is, you know, we've thought about all the things down the road that we know that it's going to be healthy and happy and great for everybody. That's, right. you know, the simplified version of right, it, right? Right, That's when you start promoting it. Exactly. As the cure when you know what you're talking about. Right exactly. now we're, we're following a lead. But how do we, exactly, how do we get from one, an N of one, to the cure if we don't have people who are things like early adopters yeah. or other people who are willing to participate in the science to see if... That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, we can do obviously lots of animal models and other, you know, statistical modeling and things like that, but that we do need to go through the process of testing these type of things on humans to make sure that it's working. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Or at least, you know, at the, the way these things usually go when they begin with an engineering uh, type of innovation is you start start with case reports and then you have case series and then you start recruiting for trials and until then you know it's really difficult for me to jump on any advertising bandwagon but I also think it's important for people to hear uh, I don't know for people to hear somebody say that you know science is not just repeating what someone else wrote down science is also recognizing legitimate natural signals and having the courage and the wisdom to follow them and, um, and to deal with that information safely. Something from my world that this really resonates with is I, I really get discouraged when people just say, oh, there's not enough evidence, there's not enough evidence, and they kind of wave their hands and then they walk away. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's siloed thinking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's a, that's a cop-out to me. Yeah. You're just like, I, I don't need to go any farther than saying I don't have enough evidence, I can't make a decision. Mm-hmm. You True research, true scientific thought is someone who's able to say, hey, this is the evidence that we have right now. This is how I put it in context mm-hmm. with the information that we have demonstrated by other evidence. And let's make a plan to move forward. You know, it's similar to the it's similar to the reasons to treat. Yep. You're going to treat um, terminal cancer patients very differently than you're going to treat mild sleep apnea Absolutely. patients. Absolutely. And the information and the context is important. And so that's why we're having these really nuanced discussions about these all these different types of oral devices because you and me both are trying to navigate our way through how do we go about understanding whether these are helping people, yeah. whether these should be pursued or whether they should not. And, and how do we protect sort of the average bystander? against sort of a profiteering practice who just wants to put the label on you and get you get you treated with their device and get you out. Because we can't pretend that everybody out there has the purest of intentions and just wants to make the world a better place. Well, you know, I, and I and I want to I want to avoid casting that stone. I don't think it's about intentions or purity or anything else. I think that the, the profiteering viewpoint is not necessarily bad. It just it, it, it there is a tension with a requirement to, for patient safety. We need to recognize that making money is what makes the world go round. And having a legitimate business plan is what's going to be able to make these treatments go out and and have a a footing in the community. But that being said, you know, um, 
the average person walking between those silos who's like, hey, I'm a little sleepy. Hey, there's a sign on the door. I'll walk in here. You know, who knows what's going on at that point? And that person ideally should have a, a good visit to the five finger approach mountain to understand that it's not all just the airway. And then that person before get, they get slapped with a label and a treatment should have a really, really long coffee hut discussion. Is this the right thing for me? What are my goals? Mm -hmm. You know, what type of what flavor of sleep apnea do I have? What moving parts are, are involved, you know? For me, it's really interesting as a researcher because we have this whole, um, it's a calling, right? We do it because we're yeah. passionate about it. And you're and, truth seekers. Yes, and we're seeking the truth. And and you're very right to acknowledge the fact that we live in a society that you need to keep the lights on for your business. You need to be able to mm -hmm. pay the salaries. If you want to continue to treat people, you've got to keep the lights on, basically, mm -hmm. is the easy way to say it. Mm -hmm. And that's a part of this. Yeah. And so people should be compensated appropriately for the value that they bring and the care that they do. But we should be aware that there are people out there who don't have the best intentions in mind. Yeah. And how do yeah. we help people navigate that? Yeah, yeah. And well, you know, I think what we have to bring it all back to is the fact that this is ultimately about a person. And that person is the patient. So ultimately, that person needs to know their way around so that they can participate as an active navigator in this journey. There's really no other way to do it because a lot of the information is hidden from the provider because only the patient knows it. And they won't know to disclose it unless they're given a structure for it, right? I, I think that that is so key. That's so key. There's no way the patient would know to say, actually, I have been feeling sleepy to mm -hmm. their person who's looking at their infections in their nose. Right. Because, or their headaches. Right. Th you, those don't necessarily go hand in hand. They, they don't. And the problem with sleep and the beauty of sleep is that it's literally in everything. It's attached to everything. We know that there is not <laughs> a single thing that is not affected by your sleep. It's it's incredible. This this was literally the rabbit hole that, that lured me into this specialty is that everywhere I looked, if you weren't getting good sleep, it was making it worse. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my goodness, what have I been missing all this time? Absolutely. And it's really been the quest for wholeness, you know? And because having whole sleep makes us feel whole as individuals, as humans, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and that's really why we're here, because... We're so passionate. As going back to the story I was telling before, I was kept talking about the empowered sleep apnea mindset. And then five minutes later, 10 minutes later, I was like, oh, I'm dominating this conversation because I love, I, I'm so passionate about telling people that like there's better things out there for you if your sleep's not good. Yes. You shouldn't just toss that machine aside because you don't know what you're, like what's going on and you don't feel empowered to make a informed decision. Yeah. So that's why we're here. That's why we're talking about all this stuff is to coming back to the patient. Yeah. I've been lurking on Reddit. Oh, yeah? Recently. What kind of Reddit? Well, there's a sleep apnea page on Reddit. Oh, interesting. And, and a friend of mine who is way more technologically developed than I recommended it. And, and what I've been noticing is there are, there are so many people who are hurting because they just don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. I can only lurk for so long because it breaks my heart. And I've left a few, you know, kind responses and said, hey, why don't you check out the, the website and learn about the five reasons to treat? You know, there's check out the podcast. It'll teach you some stuff that you can really fit you for your journey, you know? Yeah, that's amazing, Dave. 
I'm realizing that there are so many people reaching out. So um, listeners, if, if, if this uh, program appeals to you, please consider leaving a review because it'll help us get found by other seekers who are trying to find uh, valuable information that'll make them feel empowered and, and, and give them a sense of agency with, within this complex diagnosis. Well, just not just this diagnosis either, because um, you remember from our book signing, the one person that really, really stuck out to me was uh, he stood up and he said, you know, this book's not just about sleep. It's about how to drive any healthcare journey, how to communicate with any patient. It, it has to be done by you. You're the only one who's in charge. In other words, it has to be collaborative. Yeah. And, you know, the, the word collaboration has been on my mind constantly because this is not just a collaboration between provider and patient. This is an understanding that um, this needs to be a collaborative effort between all the silos too because when we're not communicating with one another it's the patient who gets harmed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that kind of collaboration is very difficult to achieve because silos are silos because they don't talk to each other you know so how does one achieve that well I don't know maybe a big blue balloon will help <laughs> that would be nice yes absolutely we can only try right yeah we can only try well, we've talked a lot about the oral appliance aspect um, in different flavors. We were looking at an article before um, that we were kind of talking about some of the harms that may have been caused yeah. um, by these devices mm -hmm. when they're maybe not used correctly. Yeah. Um, and I think that... It's a, yeah, it's heartbreaking when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, it's it's really interesting. There's some other articles that you and I have talked about um, that have come out recently of people who um, people who are just sharing information about their, their personal experiences with sleep apnea care not going to plan, mm -hmm, right? Not mm -hmm. resolving their symptoms. And I think um, we had a really interesting discussion about how we can try to bring everybody in, right? And we can, instead of looking at reading these things and saying, well, they did that wrong and they did that wrong and they did that wrong, mm -hmm. we can hopefully look at these examples and learn how we can do things right. Yeah, and also just sort of understanding that within every silo, people get mistreated. And and just, um, and the, you know, the occurrence of harm is not representation of, uh, of malicious intent or, or even necessarily responsibility because harm happens in, in all medical fields. You know, the, the issue is that I think in order to learn from each other, we have to learn how it is that uh, silos become uh, deaf to one another and then we have to learn how we can communicate with one another. And the one thing that I know always seems to work is empathy and respect for the journey. And so, you know, um, uh, part of the Empowered Sleep Apnea Project goal is to create a language that everybody in every silo can speak and understand patients and providers. You know, it, it unites the entire playing field, if you will, and it unites it in favor of the patient. So if everybody knows about the five reasons to treat and the coffee hut discussion and the, the need to set goals and the need that the understanding there's many ways across the river, suddenly these isolated problems where somebody gets in a silo and they, they get mistreated, it seems like it's going to be less likely because people know there's going to be fluidity. Mm -hmm. you know? 
and recognizing that doctors are humans too and researchers are humans too and patients are humans mm -hmm. too. Having the coffee shop conversation, um, realizing and remembering that it is a conversation, a back and forth. A back and, and forth, yes. And a collaborative, collaborative back and forth. That's the most important thing, I think, to, to emphasize here is that we're presenting a lot of different options. We're presenting a lot of different tra trajectories, but not everyone fits everyone. Yeah. Right? And ultimately, it's going to be the patient driving the na driving the boat, really, mm -hmm. uh, navigating. And, and uh, the way I kind of see the provider-patient partnership is it really should be not sort of a, you know, leading by the nose. It should be more an arm over the shoulder and helping you see the entire room and then giving you guidance about what seems to be a good idea and where to go. Because thinking of my experiences, um, you know, when I tore my ACL, I was just like, tell me what to do. You're the doctor, tell mm -hmm. me what to do. You're the Sometimes expert. Sometimes that's what you want. You and know, with an injury like that, you're you're like, I'm in your hands, man, literally. Exactly. You just do your job. Yeah, and you just you go to your surgeon and they take care of you. But in other scenarios, so people have that experience is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. People have that experience where they've been in a situation where the doctor's the expert, you know, a cardiologist or whatever, something serious like that, and you just say, take care of me. And But we don't necessarily acknowledge that not every disease or every condition should be treated that way and That's right. and kind of what we're saying here is look at all these tools we in sleep medicine should be more collaborative than that yes yes we, i agree with that yeah i agree with that and i think we're moving towards that you know it's just there's a lot of inert there's a lot of institutional inertia with any given treatment there's going to be a lot of there's a lot of dollars involved and sponsorships and people sitting on boards. And so there's there's going to be some stone throwing because there's always a little bit of profiteering mixed in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, it's just the way it is. It's yeah. Any organization gets big like that. So, you know, change has to come gradually. And, uh, and understanding new ideas has to come gradually. But I'm hoping that the idea of a, a unifying language that helps everyone understand this complex disorder won't be too big of a pill to swallow. We, we got our first great review. Oh, yeah? Yeah, in Cranio, in the journal Cranio, we got a wonderful review. And in my view, this is just proof that the language is working. You know, uh, this is a dentist who, who really doesn't know us at all. Uh, it's a completely different silo. It's this a dental establishment silo. And and uh, and he perfectly understood the message. So I, I, I found that compelling. Well, that's, that's the key, too, is we're here to talk to other people in a shared language and to create this space where we're all... We're, we're opening, we're kind of, I don't know, we're not trying to air the dirty laundry, but talking about how the inner workings of the process of getting treatment and managing treatment works yes. is makes it more comfortable for people to understand where they are and where they need to go. Mm -hmm. Because even just understanding, you know, the doctor's office is a business. That's part of the problem is that people... There's a tension there always. Exactly. And yeah. so if we can kind of all come to the same place and acknowledge that, then we can move to forward together. Yes, yes. And it's hard to talk about a fractured system without people getting angry at each other. Yeah. So, you know, we'll stay in our blue balloon. We'll try and help 
people see how we're all connected. You mm -hmm. know, that's going to be the goal of the Empowered Sleep Apnea Project. You know, there's another part of Kate's story that really struck me. Um, you know, you can hear sort of she's an intuitive person. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that guided her towards this particular treatment was her, her sense of uh, I don't know, uh, what, what did she call it? Uh, good vibrations? Something like that, yeah, I remember. She got a good feeling from Dr. Balfour, you know? And and what she basically told a story of is what it feels like to sort of be with a provider who's listening to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, you know, I, I know Ted, and he has a very strong healer's instincts. You know, his profiteering instinct is enough to, to keep him in business, but it really never trumps his, his healer's instincts, and patients can feel that. So, you know, understanding that these instincts are more or less developed, depending on your personality and who you train with, we have to help each other out, you know, and help, and help the, uh, the, the, the ones that don't really have the fully developed healer's instincts to understand that things happen outside their silo and people leave and there's harm that's happening. So we have to help those people advocate for themselves, you know? You know, when people come to me and say, hey, I want to come to your clinic, like, who would you recommend for me? Mm. Um, looking at looking at the doctors, yeah. you know, who would you recommend for yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting to say, you know, I don't always recommend the same person mm. because yeah, every clinician, provider, whoever, whatever layer they're in, has a different strength yeah. that meets a different personality. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right. And some, some, you know, some folks are much more algorithmic and they're like, oh, you got the disease, boom, 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 they get you out. And for some folks that works great, because yeah, you really don't want to go in there and have somebody oozing all over you. You know, it's annoying to have somebody, oh, tell me about your feeling. You know, I just want you to tell me, just give me my CPAP, I'm done, you know, I don't want to be here. So there, there is a place for everyone, and it's understanding that everyone has value, you know? Yeah, and I think emphasizing that is, is keeping us in this land of not throwing rocks. There's nothing wrong with that type of practicing as long as you're taking the patient into consideration. And yep. if they come into you and they're a straightforward case, you know, if they're a home run, 100% do yep. that. That's right. But if there's any issues, having this framework to lean back on and have these conversations um, with the shared language yep. so that patients can advocate in the case of any issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's super important. I feel that too. Yeah. It's really interesting to me to have cases presented on here. Yeah. To be as a researcher looking at these cases and, and having to fight that internal bit of N of one, it's an N of one, yeah. but it's an exciting thing. Yeah. And when you understand um, why it's happening, how it's happening, why the people targeted the treatment in this way, yep. and you follow the whole progression of the case, it's so crystal clear. It's a, it's a field-engineered solution, and it's a cool one. And, you know, thank God, you know, that she found this solution because her life turned around. Absolutely. And if she hadn't tried it, we would never know. Yeah, we'd never know. Huh. What is science? What is evidence-based? I mean, evidence-based, that's what I was kind of trying to say before. Science... And evidence is about taking what you see and, and understanding if it happened by chance or if it or happened if it was real. Yeah. by intention. That's right. It's statistically showing right. that it didn't happen by chance is really all science is. Yeah. And so setting up your statistics appropriately is all about doing good science. So when when the um, the NASA engineers threw that stuff onto the table and they say, we've got to put a round 
or a square peg in a round hole using nothing but that rapidly, right? Remember that scene from Apollo mm-hmm. 13? So those people were using scientific principles and engineering principles to solve a very real problem with an end that was absolutely one. And they will never do a randomized controlled trial that that worked and they succeeded. And so, you know, it's just a different viewpoint of the way to, to promote a medical treatment. You know, on the one hand, there is an engineering problem of an airway that's too small and we've got these tools and hey, these tools are actually making things move. So, hey, do you feel better? Do you feel better? Do you feel better? Ding, yeah, you do. Okay, great, good job. And then there's this approach of we label it, we create a treatment for it, and we design a giant trial. And that takes years. And so there's these very two different developmental pathways for something that could be a very legitimate, you know, one is a a field engineer who's working in real time, tweaking, counter tweaking. And then at the end of a decade, they can tell you what they did, but nothing's been published. And that's kind of where Dr. Belfour is right now. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing about science is it's very reactionary, right? So research has become very reactionary because harm has been done in the past. Mm -hmm. And so we always carry that with us, knowing that we have to try to protect everyone at all times mm-hmm. because people can do bad things. And the treatment is and the treatments and the diagnostics can be part of the problem as we learned from our friend Ignaz Semmelweis. You know, we think of how we came about some of the knowledge that we have in our world right now mm-hmm. and it would be disrespectful to the ways that we got it to Mm -hmm. not use it. That's right. That's exactly right. So we can't throw out everything just because it doesn't meet the randomized controlled trial gold standard. We have to make sure, but we have to make sure that we don't do harm going forward. So I'm always going to be slightly skeptical of someone who's tweaking and tankering with people's bodies. Because it's a high-risk, high-reward situation, mm-hmm. you can do very substantial harm, as we've seen in examples. Mm-hmm. But we won't get anywhere new without trying anything. Mm-hmm. And, and if we don't follow the signals and try to understand the bright spots, absolutely. we're never going to make progress. And having those conversations honestly with people who are not primarily scientific-minded, qualified researchers and saying, hey, we're just out here doing our best. We want to figure out new information for you, but we're not, you know, telepathic. We're not all-knowing. We can't know what the outcome is going to be before we start. Mm-hmm. So we have to we have to have these signals mm-hmm. to follow up mm-hmm. on. Really, what we need to sort of be pushing for is a more equitable seat at the table to, that allows some of these field engineers to partner with academics so that they can publish their work and we can start looking into some of these promising new bright lights so that some of this rock throwing can stop. That's the coolest thing about the case study that you've done is you know a lot about sleep apnea. Yeah. And you know, a little bit, a little bit. (laughs) More than the average rock. And you know, (laughs) you know enough about patient care that you can partner with someone who has the experience of the, the, the actual treatment that's different from what the mainstream treatments are. And you can say, hey, I can compare these to the outcomes that I would use on my patient and I can communicate it in that way. 
when we can learn to speak the same language. Exactly. And, and get these promising uh, field engineered viewpoints out there so that we can start a better conversation and, uh, and really have it, uh, that conversation be fueled by our desire to help the patient on, on their level. So back to our patient-centered strategy no matter what we're doing. Absolutely, and being able to talk to patients as a researcher and as a clinician um, and having the same words to refer to the same things will bring everybody to the table, which is crucial. Crucial. Empowered Sleep Apnea, the podcast, is a production of Empowered Sleep Apnea, LLC. The opening sequence was written and performed by Kate Yeshrin and produced by Dave McCarty. The show is otherwise written and performed by David E. McCarty, MD, FAASM, and Ellen Stothard, PhD. Stage lighting for today's show is provided courtesy of Nikola Tesla's fabulous invention, Alternating Current Electricity. Promotional materials are created from an equal combination of trust and shared experience. Music, as always, was performed by 25% Fred. Check us out on the interwebs at www.empoweredsleepapnea.com where you can check out loads of fun stuff including cartoons, links to all podcast episodes and specials, transcripts of the shows, Dave's Notes, the official blog of Empowered Sleep Apnea, and, if you're so inclined, links to purchase our beautiful blue book, which is now available in hardback as well as ebook editions. If you enjoyed the program, please make sure and go back and listen to season one so you can get properly, lovingly indoctrinated into the language of empowerment. And please, please, please consider leaving a positive review on the podcast platform of your choice. That'll help other seekers find us. Make sure you tune in next time when we'll take our beautiful blue balloon all the way across or should I say down under to the other side of the planet when we'll hear from Sharon Moore, author of Sleep Wrecked Kids, Sleep Wrecked Kids. Sleep Wrecked Kids. as she shares with us her story of transformation. As always, I'd recommend against doing something else. Coming up next, again as always, your sleep medicine dad joke. Hey, you know, I'm pretty good at sleeping. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm pretty good at it. How good are you, Daddy-o? Believe it or not, I'm so good. I can do it with my eyes closed. <laughs> 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 wow, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> in my eyes closed. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> shit.